Kia ora I'm Julia Wilcox and welcome to Indigenous 100, the podcast series where we interview 100 of the most inspiring Indigenous thought leaders from around the world. Me mihi Our thanks to Tamangai Paho for supporting this series of Indigenous 100 and for funding all of the Indigenous content that they support. For today's episode, it's another very special guest indeed. She's a fierce and staunch advocate for Indigenous and Māori rights. But it was her participation in the Springbok tour protest in Te Whanganuiatara and Wellington that led to her career as a lawyer. She's been at the forefront of many legal Māori issues and also fought and advocated for iwi throughout Aotearoa. She talks about constitutional change, the arrangements that are required to achieve that, and also the impact of the current political climate on Māori aspirations. Our guest for Indigenous 100 is the one and only Annette Sykes. Whakarongo mai. Annette Sykes, te nāwe. No mai. No mai. Welcome to Indigenous 100. It's a privilege to have you as a part of our show. Welcome. I think the privilege is mine, Julian. You're um, certainly of my generation, one of the greatest broadcasters. So I very have really um, done interviews with you. So um, the privilege is all mine. Um, thank you for that, and we'll edit that out in post. <laughs> <laughs> um, I wanted to start actually by wondering what it was you actually wanted to do when you were younger. When you were a child, what did you want to do? Well, um, I came back from the United World College of Southeast Asia after a stint at uh, summer school in Cambridge, mm. and I came back and I wanted to pursue philosophy, politics, and economics, and I started in a BCA at Victoria University, and um, it was at a time when there was a wave of activism. The land rights movements were there, the Ngātamatō leadership was inculcated in the academia, and then you had visionaries of Fata Winyata's type who were looking to create uh, modern leadership that were bilingual, that were um, uh, uh, those that would imagine a yeah. different future than the subversive um, elements of the Hun Report, for example. Yeah. Pat Hohepa, um, uh, they, they inspired... Uh, then you had older uh, academics like Wiramu Parker for me. He was somebody that stands out in my early um, uh, encounters at Victoria University uh, with Ruka Broughton, mm. um, inculcating tikanga as the baseline for any uh, reclamation strategy of our values in whichever um, area we had decided to walk. So interesting time to return to, yeah. but a volatile time because, yeah. of course, you had Sid and Hana and their movements. You had uh, Kathy and Koro Jews with the Te Reo Māori Society, and then you had a lot of the gay liberationists, I think, going through that period, um, challenging homosexual laws and the, um, and the injustices that were being impacted upon Māori communities. So... Good wow. time to come home to be a political analyst yeah. doing economics. I'm not too sure. I know, because when you said BCA, I was going, well, how does that work out the way that it's worked out with you? Now I understand, because at the time, I think you're right. I think um, Fatarangi was a professor or a social professor was, at the time, yeah, yeah. at Vic. So, and that, and that, now, now I get it because such a mild mannered man, but boy, what a transformational 
person in terms of Māori and things Māori, obviously Tuanu Oraka and many other things. But you're right, at Victoria University at that time in the build-up to the Springbok tour in 19, there was a mm. lot going on. Mm. Um, and there was, uh, I think, an emerging core mm. of um, Māori uh, traditionalists there. See, I saw Koro Jews and his wife Kura very much as traditionalists, and they were the kind that when there was a tangi of anyone at in the Māori students that was there, we didn't just go and mourn with that person at their flat. Mm. We all went in our cars back to the tangi. And so we had a different kind of leadership than I see at university now, for yeah. example. It's very intimate. They all knew through papa who we were mourning. And they also knew that we were treasured by our families because we were the second wave of Māori coming through. The first wave had come 10 or 12 years before us. And so they wanted to keep the second wave there. And I, I felt like I was treasured by people like um, Koro for those things. And he did it in his abrupt way because, you know, everybody who knows Koro knows that he's a, a man that never um, held bars on what he said. Mm. But his wife was a loving counterpart to his kind of leadership. And they instilled in me deep things. The other, the other thing I need to say is that um, the New Zealand Council for Educational Research was looking at ways to inculcate the reclamation of te reo. Mm. So I managed, because I was pōhara, I managed to get a job with Richard Benton um, in his unit. So I was part of the first Māori English um, uh, di dictionary creators with Tawani Rangihau and Kui Wano. Oh. And so, um, and Debbie Tibble. So in my off student life, because I worked pretty hard, uh, I made money doing something um, because of my economic and computing skills yeah. at that stage that um, enabled the creation of the first Māori English um, dictionary. What a fascinating time. I know. I didn't know that. I didn't know that you were This involved. is in my first six months after wow. I'd returned from Singapore, been in London, and came home to that world. Yeah. So I had kapahaka, I had um, te reo Māori activism for the petition, and then I had a work life that was about making sure that you um, you promoted academic outcome to the best of your ability. I've spoken to a lot of people of Te Reo Māori Society, and I said, did you know at the time the impact that you were going to have on, on us? You know, and, and people talk about intergenerational transmission of knowledge and the impacts that people can make for the next generations. And it always felt to me like that, that at the time, particularly during those movements in the 70s, that that there was something in mind that they were going to have a huge and profound impact, actually, on the next generation and those below. Was that something that was actively discussed? Are you aware that that was something that was being talked about? Or was it just because when you're in the thick of it, you do what you do? I think it was something that was um, not never talked about. Oh, it wow. was uh, an expectation from our people that we would sacrifice yeah. our lives at home to go to university to be part of the second wave of academia. I know my mother was the first part of the first wave with Rangi Walker. She mm. was a school teacher, had come to Auckland, um, graduated, matric matriculated, and then went back to Kawarau. Where if you look at all of the students that came out of Kawarau, six or seven Māori women school teachers actually shaped the future of that town because of the way they nurtured us. So, yeah, I think there was um, a bit of social engineering going on by our parents' yeah. generation. I mean, there was Chris Winitana's Mum and Dad, Tom and Claire were in Kawaro at that stage. There was um, uh, Ken, uh, Kath Hickey, whose uh, sister had married a Karapukatapu. You know, they were all school teachers around this time. Meratamita, 
was my school teacher. <laughs> now, how could you not be um, yeah. impacted upon yes. by the beauty, but also the dynamism of her challenges to um, any uh, education process that wasn't behind a camera, you know, that we were learning Shakespeare, we weren't actually learning modern drama, and so, that's what she wanted for us. So given the impact of that community, though, because the question could be not that you found the advocacy, but the advocacy found you. Yeah, and I, I think uh, I, I feel that I fell into something yeah. with the Springbok tour, and the, I was on Molesworth Street, Shane Jones was beside me, and Dukidangi Gage was beside me, and we were in the Māori Club. And then the Red Squad came down Molesworth Street and beat us. And the Pākehā woman that was in Māori Club with me, her head got split open. Mm. And I decided right then that I had the injustice of the situation meant that I was destined to either be a lawyer or to do something to challenge the brutal brutality of that violence. Um, and I grew a deep respect for leaders now, like uh, uh, Rikirangi Gage who was the ultimate arch protector for me on that evening. Um, uh, men like uh, Lindsay Cox, so I don't, people don't know him, but mm. he's the first of us that wrote a book called Tahitanga. He was there in the thick of it with us. And um, once that had happened, the impact of the brutality of that, I then became an active member with Nanet Wihipahana and Martin Sabaya um, in the Holtel Racist um, Tours movement because Trevor Richards was based in Wellington. And then I was fortunate to meet up with a number of Māori activists yeah. who I, I count as my friends now, like Tamiti and Tuhipo, Kiriopo of that period and and John Minto and, and all of those people that um, were the leaders. And I joined with Tamia um, all of the protest movements that Tam, Tamia ever did because of that time. What was the conversation like? with mum, <laughs> you know, as you say, that expectation of being sent away to university from Kabarau and expectation of educational attainment, what was the conversation like when there'd been a bit of a change potentially to that plan and a, and a life of ag advocacy had set forth and presented itself to you? My mum was easy. My dad wasn't easy. Okay. My dad was on the Bay Plenty Rugby Union uh, and he was pro-tour and he didn't talk to me for several years. Uh, Tamaiti served him with this, uh, you know, remember the notices? Yes. The trespassers yes. will be eaten from, we had a farm at Tanuatua, so the first Pākehā farmer he delivered that notice to was my dad. <laughs> and so he was, there was some adjustment, but having said that, um, while I was at uh, uh, university, we had a car accident, I've got a, uh, this is taking me back a long time now, and um, we were going to Hunga uh, Tawira, you know, Ngai Tawira mm. of that period. And we were lucky to survive that car accident. It was on the Waiuri. We'd all done a law, uh, law exam in the morning and then we were racing up to get to the poor head in the afternoon. Who, who are we talking about in the car? In the car was Rikirangi Gage and Joe Williams, no, Sir Joe Williams now, and Shelley and uh, uh, well, Crash Cox, as I called him, because he was driving it. Um, Lindsay, Lindsay Cox was in the in the car and um, one of the Thomases, who's uh, a mokopuna of the Manahi Fano. So he's wow. passed away now. But in that car, the car split in half. Uh, uh, we slid across the road. I don't know how we all survived. I still to this day believe it was the karakia that Rikirangi Gage, who I've always said is our arch protector, 
gave. That was my, you know, before we all went into unconsciousness, the consciousness of the spiritual realm was him con- uh, just doing a takoti um, karakia, hei manaki te wairua kia, turihi whakataha ya tata katoa Wow. So we survived that. And, and my dad came down. You said the car split. Yeah. And then my dad came down in his Pākehā fashion to come and pick us up. Some of us ended up going back to Waikato because that's where um, Ngai Tawira was being held. Mm. Some of us stayed in hospital. But um, I think for myself, that in itself, that that whole, um, tr- well, the trauma of that accident and our survival of it is really the trauma of colonisation and our survival of it and the leadership that I think some of us in that car have gone on to take is epitomised by that that day. Uh, well, thankfully, <laughs> thankfully you all survived. Not only Rikirangi, I suppose there might have been a bit of, you know, is manaki going on there. Going on there as well. Wow, I've I've never heard that story before. Oh, there's a lot of stories that we kind of keep (laughs) tucked away. We don't show our vulnerabilities to the world, and that was a vulnerable time. But it was an exciting, vibrant time because before we'd gone to it, I'd done my first karanga with Ruka taking us to a river and saying, if you can't be heard on that side of the river. So, you know, breaking my taboos, I came from a very traditional Tarawa family where only the oldest sister of, of yeah. the whānau did the karanga. And then you had this um, new wave of intelligentsia saying, well, our traditions need to be retained, they're dying, need to be revived and captured by a generation. So all of that was going on. Um, there was a whole lot of discussions. We had Pākehā in our Māori club, and we had gay men teaching our kapahaka, who were, I mean, you know, some of the best waiata. So there was a lot of challenging of traditional norms yeah. occurring. And I just think that that time broke barriers in all sorts of ways, you know. Yeah, the Dame Azazi as well at the same yeah. time and all the pressure that was being heaped upon her for, yeah. you know, te wahine tu ki runga yeah. You know, um, um, it seems to me that these things find their way to you somehow, you know. And and um, it's a phrase I like to use, serendipity of longitude. It's, it's the fluke of, fluke of life thing where things just follow the person. You know, and I don't know if you feel that, but it seems to be that that's what happens with you a lot. Yeah, I think, uh, I don't think you need to under, I'm a hard worker too. So I think oh, that fate, that's true. Yeah. fate has certainly brought me into contact with people who have, uh, I've had as long life friendships and I've had leadership. Uh, you know, while I was at university in Auckland, I was in Wananga with the late Sir James Henare and uh, Rob Cooper and Rua Rakina, who I would say were the, one of the survivors of the Ngāpuhi Wananga, mm. you know, Rima, Edwards and, and Mira. Mm. Now, how, how would, who would have thought that when I'm doing a Te Tiriti or Waitangi paper, I had the fortitude to be part of a Wananga that was organised outside lectures by Ruarākena through the National Council of Churches, and there we would have the the magnificent mindsets of those individuals. You know, they were trained in the traditional mm. wānanga of Ngāpuhi. They were some of the last survivors of that um, training, and um, th- they taught us with such a humility. Can I say that's one thing people forget about Ngāpuhi as the guardians of Te Tiriti, their, their humility to hold that document um, as the foundation of constitutional dynamics in this country, I think should never be forgotten. They've held it passionately since 1835, but they've never 
they don't really go out and sing it around the praises. There's no whakahihi in that. There's no arrogance in that. There's just this humble obligation and responsibility to do that and then to share what that means with whomever is um, wanting to sip from the cup of that knowledge, which I did. There was a few of us that yeah. wanted that, that at that time. I do want to talk about our constitutional arrangements mm. and your views on actually given work of people that you are very close to. I mm. want to talk about that and where that sits currently and what we should do about that. Um, and I hope you don't mind us doing that um, given your legal expertise and the, and, and the like. But I want to come back to another point that you made, which is that, that you are a hard worker. Mm. Where does that come from? Well, my grandmother um, was the Ducks of Queen Victoria and my grandfather went to St. Stephen's and matriculated from there. And we're talking uh, early 1900s, um, before the First World War, but neither of them, well, my grandmother wasn't permitted to do law. She went to um, a fielding agricultural college. Um, she did a legal secretary's training there. And she actually played um, in the New Zealand women's hockey team. So she was, a, you know, she graduated. My my grandfather, on the other hand, he came home, worked in the Ministry of Works back then, worked on the roads, but he was an uh, avid conservationist and went around our lake maintaining all of the conservation sites of our coda and all of the fish that were being um, affected by the introduction of trout species at that time. Mm. So... I grew up under their mantle. I had a mother who had gone away because we were poor. You know, we didn't have toilets inside. We didn't have power. So we had a humble beginning, but we had a beginning that we, um, as a family, committed to ensuring well-being for all of us. My mum, I think she escaped the poverty by marrying uh, my Pākehā father. I've got to be honest about that. It was a difficult time for her because my grandparents didn't want Pākehā into our whānau. Mm. And he, she was his second wife, so he'd had a previous relationship. So I've got two Pākehā brothers. So why was I hardworking? My Catholic ethic for my dad, the reality of that um, need to work to pay the bills for my grandparents and only having role models of people that got up at five o'clock in the morning yeah. and went to bed at midnight is, uh, you know, because we're at the marae all the time, mahi marae, are things that are just instilled with you, you know. Is that where the, uh, the imaima name comes from, from your grandmother? Well, her sister is that. Te Maimi Tarangi is a constellation from the heaven. It's a bit like Halley's Comet, and oh, it was okay. inspired by the Tarawa rocket. So when I was born, they decided I was going to be that comet that had <laughs> our whanos. I don't know. But um, Te Maima was my grandmother's uh, most precious sister. Oh, yeah. They ended up calling her Rātoru the third day. So, um, But I am uh, I carry that name um, with great pride. It, um, uh, also, during the times of Ruakinana, these are white tikoka over Lake Okotana, where the peoples of Tuhu used to gather to escape um, the soldiers. And that white tikoka is named after Te Maima, after mm. the stars. So I try and be that vision of protection when um, people are being harassed by the full force of the invading troops of the colonial state, whether it be armies like that time or policemen in the modern context, or justice systems that have structural racism at its heart. Yeah. 
Did, did the, the legal profession come about because that was the most effective way do you, you thought that you could create outcomes for Māori to protect them from that colonial insertion, that, you, that colonial oppression that we talk about and the imperialism of the colonial forces and the like, and it continues. Was that the most direct way you think you could contribute to that? I go back to that day on Molesworth Street. It was a deliberate decision at that right. point to go into a double degree, to to look at ways that I could find as an advocate for what I saw as the injustice. Remembering people like um, Dunmihakanos, you know, and Diane Prince were being denied the right to speak Māori. And they were, you know, I, I remember going to watch their case and they were handcuffed because they refused to come into the court if they couldn't speak Māori. So, you know, there was this time of... Uh, reclamation of rejuvenation being desired, but there was this oppressive law preventing that. You know, we had to argue in that case that um, we had to use a Māori agent so that we could have someone as a translator for them mm -hmm. rather than the original right. So it was a bit of that. Um, I was I was good at law too. I found the Socratic method of teaching and um, Victoria appealed to the way we teach in Marae. Mm. Uh, and then when I came to Auckland University, um, because I thought the topics were more exciting, I had great um, teachers up here, uh, Professor David Williams, Professor Jane Kelsey, um, uh, Jerry Alkind was a constitutional lawyer. He wasn't that great, but he was all right. And Professor Northy was the dean. No. And then I was surrounded by an uh, intelligentsia in the Pākehā world who I thought was, uh, and they're still dynamic now, one of them's the Chief Justice, mm -hmm. um, Helen Winkelman, and she, she was a star that stood out during my time in Auckland. She's still a star now. And I was just lucky to observe that kind of woman breaking free because there weren't that many women in mm. law school and she was the one that was um, a graduated top of our class in our year and she just went on to do great things. And that was the kind of inspiration that I said, I'm going to do those kind of things for Māori as well. See, it's interesting you put it that way because for a lot of us, um, uh, not um, uh, in close contact with the law nor indeed officers of the court, we see that environment as being constricting and contracting and stifling yeah. and, and fairly conventional. And it seems to me that you went in with an approach of, well, not only could you work with it, but but also potentially you could help transform that? Yeah, I didn't want to transform their system. I no. wanted to revive ours. Right. And I still want to have our own separate Māori justice system because my grandmother had told me that we can't, uh, I think OJ Lord said that, but we can't dismantle something that we didn't build in the first place, right. that we needed to also build our own things, that we're built from things that we've always treasured in our own place. My grandmother had been denied the right to be a lawyer, so she ended up being a secretary for my grandfather, who was the chairman of the Tauroa Trust Board. And so she documented all of the... Um, discussions between him and the late Sir Apirana around how Tarawa would keep the lake beds, those 14 lake beds and the ownership of our people. Mm. And her um, uncle, um, Tere Fati Vuko, um, they, they became the master strategist for Ngāti Pikeau to retain our lands. And my grandmother was at all those meetings. She was a close friend of Tapuya, who was also trying to do revival during the land councils and the interactions between Tarawa. So I had that leadership, but also that understanding that my grandmother said that they should close the door on us, the Pākehā system, so we need to develop our own initiatives in our own way, built on our own values. Even then? Even then. My grandmother was, you just needed to um, see her. Her name was Tawhitu Araki. She's an old goddess, but she was um, her father's uh 
right-hand person. Wow. And, um, you know, so the ducks from – so she had both languages going yeah. for her. Yeah. She turned her back on um, waiata and uh, those kind of things. She was always the one doing the – the writing for our people, which I think is a role that I've inherited from me. I still sing and dance, but it doesn't it turn me on as much as those that are front row matarai, for example. <laughs> I think my my calling is something quite different than that. But having said that, um, she encouraged her sisters to do those things yeah. and to be the masters of those things. Not just do it, do yeah. it well. But the accumulated wealth of the experience of the people that you've just mentioned, so you mentioned strategy, administration, um, um, vision, Mm. Uh, um, um, ret- you know, retention of, as you say, Wyatt and the like, not necessarily being the, the, the classy exponent of it. Mm. I mean, those are all things that it seems to be a part of your weaponry. If that's the wrong way to put it, if you know what I mean. But they're a part, they're a part of your toolkit. And and do you do you use those at different times when you need to? Even then, when we you were still young and, and studying the law, and also being an, an officer of the court. Yeah, I, I, I tried to just remind myself that I wouldn't be inhibited yeah. by that. You know, I also went to the United World of College of Southeast Asia in Singapore. Yeah. Um, Waka Nathan had selected me on that scholarship and I became head girl there. Yeah. You know, this is a school of uh, nearly 2,000 multinational students that are based in um, Singapore. I had the fortune to meet great leadership, Lee Kuan Yew, of that period, and I went to school with David Marshall's daughter. Now, David Marshall never lost the criminal trial, so I, through those experiences, it gave me a much more fluid understanding of the dynamics of human relationships, but how identity is so central to it. You are you are nothing in those relationships if you do not know who you are. And I had, you know, friendly reminders. When I was in Cambridge, the Kroa um, Rangiho said to me, Annette, be careful, you're becoming a potato. You know, let's be clear, that's what he said. You know, and I said, what's that? And he said, you know, all brown on the outside and all white and mushy on the inside, like your Pākehā whānau. So, you know, there's a bit of a criticism that you take back with you. And he said, you know, we should aspire to be kumara. Sweet, the essence of ourselves, knobbly, different parts, different shapes. But the, you know, and so he sent me home because at that stage I was seriously looking at um, applying for a scholarship to go to Cambridge. But he sent me back to Victoria. I think he deliberately sent me there because he knew Coral was there to kind of shake me up. (laughs) And then, like you say, I walked into things. But I think Māori who were at university at that period, we had to survive those things. Yeah. And there was a difference than what had happened in an earlier decade. There was Ranginui Walker. There was Pat Hohepa. There was um, Whareku. You know, there was um, at Victoria University, there was Fata. Uh, there was Koro. There was Wudamu Park. And then, of course, Professor Meads arrives, mm. with, which is a different kind of leadership again. Yeah. Mostly male. Uh, but, you know, and then we start the next wave of Māori women um, lecturers starting to actually make their, their, their say. Nothing in the law schools, though. There was no Māori lecturers or no even Māori tutors in the law schools. So, of course, that was one of the things we set up is, is to try and find ways that we could um, provide that leadership. And, you know, John Tamihere was one of my contemporaries. And, uh, you know, John John is a heart of gold. When I was at Auckland, I used to hitch home every weekend and John used to take me on a Friday out to Bombay, no cost to me, and let me hitch home. Now, he knew that I did that because my grandparents weren't well, but he never made a big thing about it. But he also 
through those trips got to know a whole lot more about us and mm. did things to kind of maintain why we stay at uni because that was why people were leaving our poverty. Mm. Let's be really clear. That was one of the biggest barriers to staying, and it still is. It's not so much living away from home. It's living here and not being able to eat here. And those were the things John was very acutely aware of. Because you mentioned John and, and others. And it just seems to me that given the time, so we're talking early 80s, mm. Muldoon government mm. and everything that happens with that government at that time, particularly relating to us, it seems like that might have been the right time for a political career. Did you ever think about it then? And I, I know it's something you followed on later on. And you may think that advocacy is politics in its purest form, actually. I didn't have a choice, okay? I had to go back to Tarawa to finish the dreams that my grandmother wanted. She wanted our land back. She wanted our lakes back. Right. Had no choice in politics. It had to be mate ture anō e aki. And so that was what I did. So... I had a desire to go back, firstly for Te Reo, that was my first claim, mm. um, Te, Reo, Te Reo Māori Society, Kathy Jews and uh, Rāwari Rangitawira, he'd left Wellington and um, came back to a small firm in Rotorua. I had tried a summer clerk's job with one of the bigger firms in Auckland, didn't work out for me, I wanted to go home. So he was working for a firm called Trevor Booth, we went home and Te Reo Māori Society and Ngā Kaifakapuma, we made the Te Reo Māori claim. And I had just graduated from university and I was the first Māori woman lawyer that appeared in the Waitangi Tribunal to speak in Te Reo to be part of the Te Reo Māori claim. Now, I wasn't the flash ones at the front, you know. My job was on the just thick, uh, you know, in those days you had to use these old-fashioned photocopying machines to put out the 25 submissions so that everybody had a a copy. But I did great things as part of the claim because I met Te Reo. I met Tata. I met from Tarawa um, Tamati Farehuia, who's Mm. one of the greatest exponents. So I was driving them around. I was driving Hiko Hoipa around, (laughs) and he was telling me how that he'd, um, you know, his tikanga about why he had to give up his first girlfriend because uh, she wasn't pretty enough for him, so they'd taken 500 cows off him, you know. (laughs) These are the kinds of things I'm listening to as I'm driving to to the Te Reo Māori hearings. And then I had to organise all of those hearings, and we weren't getting paid a cent. Oh. We were sleeping at Kōkiri Sivu um, with yeah. Auntie Kiriana Olson, yeah. and she had provided mattresses, and that's where we stayed for the duration of that case. We just closed the office in Rotorua, borrowed my father's car because we didn't have a car. Kathy had the kids going at Kohangareo, and we all came down to Wellington and did that case, and what a case. Oh. We um, met... Great legal minds like Martin Dawson, who argued about the need for affirmative action. We were lucky that Whaimutu Jews were still working for the um, Ministry of Māori Affairs at that stage. He was leading the charge to educate Crown um, agencies about why the real was important and why the law was so inadequate. And then, of course, we had um, all of these Queen's Council, like Paul Temer on this side back then, you know, um, uh, who'd, who'd never been in a Māori forum out at Waifutu Marae, oh. being welcomed every day and um, living in that forum, being with the bombardment of the mana of te ao Māori, busloads from, you know, Ōtara, Lena Stevens bringing, 
busloads from Whanganui, Tainui, you know, there was just this entourage, Tarawa came down, and how it was like a, a tsunami of understanding that was inculcated by a simple statement of claim, Y11, by a small legal team, but with great leaders, Huirangi Waikerepuru and all the others, um, hohepa, uh, Heko Hohepa for us, all of those, you know, just on a mission. Yeah. They were they were the army of our people and the cultural revolution of the Māori will begin. I think that's James Henare's opening address. Mm. Fascinating. The... the my father, you might not remember this, but I think you were a part of a committee with Te Rangihau, mm. um at that time that was talking about and discussing things like not only a, separ- a separate judicial uh, legal system, but, uh, for example, um, corrections, mm. Māori and prisons and that kind of thing. The word he used for you was fearless. Yeah, no, I, I don't know if you felt that at that time or if you did feel it because you had the support of people like Tiringhau and others around you at the time. I'm not sure. No, I, I, I'm fearless. I, I think my grandmother. E- even then? Even then. Um, I was only young on the committee. It was a committee that followed the Roper Report, yeah. um, Clinton uh, Roper, and I was the only Māori woman. No, sorry, there was another Māori woman that joined us who was a corrections officer, Margaret at Mount Eden Women's Prison then, and then Auntie Pauline Tangiha. And so so that was our committee. But I had to be fearless. There was no other lawyer there. And our people's incarceration rates, so there was 8,000 people in prison at that stage, and there was 4,000 of them were Māori, and only 8% of them were women. Come forward... Nothing's really changed. About 13,000, depending on the Muslim level now. 51% of them are Māori. But if you go to the women's statistics, it's horrendous. We're about uh, 20 to 30%, and we are the most violent offenders in the women's um, statistics. So I feel that's an abject failure on my part. If we had implemented some of the things that we had saw, I saw on that committee with your father in um, 1987, we wouldn't be facing the kind he, of... He felt the same way. He felt it was an opportunity missed. Yeah. Uh, and so I don't think you should feel alone yeah. in that abject failure. He, he felt that um, it, it, maybe he thought that a, a bit of it might get soaked up in Kawatea. Maybe. Uh, well, I thought so too. I, you know, Winston Fawler's criticism, he had some significant initiatives during his political career yeah. and he had some wonderful assistance with Denise Henare as one of his yeah. right-hand people yeah. during that time. But, you know, um, I worked for Winston. People forget that. And he is somebody that he's a hugely, uh, he's a workaholic. He works um, all day, all night. Well, he certainly was. And I think he was in his 50s around then. But his read, his capacity to read and absorb material was one of the, the greatest, um, I think, attributes that he still possesses. And he's the master of a 30-second soundbite. And he required that back then in the analysis tools that you gave him. And I think he was disappointed when uh, Kawatea got skewed yeah. by Treasury, I think, if I look back on, you know, why didn't that? Because it wasn't... Um, a separatist approach that he wrote. It was a educationalist one, but it was born of the need for equal development of different communities and investment strategies. Um, and I think there was some sabotage uh, in that part by uh, members of the Treasury. And then, of course, the state-owned enterprises, uh, 
the privatisation agenda that was coming with the neoliberalism of that period, which he fought initially, mm. but um, he found ways to overcome in strategy um, as as he you know as he advanced in his own political agenda. Do you think your fearlessness has grown, or has simply the rest of society <laughs> uh, uh, changed? And you've just been the the one consistent part. The reason why I say this is, and I'm not sure if you're aware of this, as you came into the studio. Um, there's an aura that you project, <laughs> and Can it I has an impact. <laughs> it has an impact on people, particularly rangatai, because mm-hmm. they know you. I don't know if you know. Mm-hmm. They know you, and they see you, and they go, oh, that's that's it. And there's there's an aura that you project, which kind of captivates them a little bit, um, and they feel that fearlessness that you have. And I, I just wonder whether or not that you think that that's grown over time or changed or not, or whether it's been consistent. And if so, what continues to drive that? It's a deep love for our people that drives it, and I have to be fearless because that love isn't shared, and that's the sad thing in the indictment of our society. I saw that deep love in the way my dad loved my mum. Mm. It was absolute respect, which Te Tiriti contemplates. Kawanatanga and the encounters with Rangatiratanga are based on mutual respect and aroha tetahiki tetai. But subsumation is what we've actually had given to us. So therefore you need to fiercely disengage from that subsumation to create an independent agenda, a rangatiratanga agenda. And to do that, you have to stand in the, uh, in the guise of mana motuhake, which is an inherited obligation. It's not something that you learn. It's something that's been um, passed down to you. And in my family, it's certainly, you know, the the leaders around me are people that you just want to emulate, Mm. my grandmother, my aunties, um, but my, you know, both genders, men and women. And I try and do that, you know, it's just walk the talk of um, your ancestors. I try and do that now. Sadly, some of our whānau, have had the complete opposite experience in their life understanding of mana motuhake. It's mm. been trampled. It's been denied. They've become, uh, uh, they were captured by systems of the state, isolated, put into children's homes, and then on a conveyor belt to jail. And that's generations of this that's been happening since the 1930s at an, uh, an alarming rate. So um, when I when I stand fiercely for those people that are my cousins, mm. a lot of them, it's because I know that that has actually been an outcome of a social contract that was never ever honoured, and a social mismanagement or um, reconstruction of what should have been by um, white hatred. Mm. And that's one of the things that drives me. I hate white hatred. I hate people that come in with the sense that white culture is superior to us, that white culture is um, going to be the panacea for harms because it's actually white culture that is the minority if we look around the world. Mm. You know, let's be frank, Chinese, um, Africans, um, Indian people, we're all people of colour. And the white minority around the world still tries to assume through their populations that they have the sense of superiority and I rail against that, and I will continue to rail against that. I will fight that to my last living breath. Are you, are you concerned, given the current state of the country, you know, maybe that's just because of an election year and all this kind of thing, but it, it seems to me that in the era of disinformation, misinformation, look what happens to our female politicians, and we've talked about this previously at Waitangi, I know, but, but are you concerned that... 
the more things change, the more they tend to stay the same. By that I mean that, yes, our demographics have changed, and yet we have a much more pervading voice of white minority, to use that phrase, in Aotearoa, particularly around key issues of co-governance and, and the rest. And it feels like growing, to be honest. And I'm going to ask you how you think we solve that, and I think I might have a pro- I think I might have a way of doing that because I'm going to talk about constitutional arrangements, particularly mm-hmm. proposed by Moana and others, a very good friend of yours. But but are, are you concerned that the growing voice of the minority talking in the way that they're talking in this country? I am concerned, but I'm also concerned about how there's been a limit on the fourth estate by the um, the media lies. You know that. The social media construct has enabled to silence, actually. You know, the fourth estate, the media for me, has always been a tempering of the um, clashes between people with differences of opinion. And I haven't seen that. In fact, I've seen the media being used to provide a, well, create a chasm and a divide where there may only be a minority of voices speaking um, white hatred, but that voice seems to be getting louder and louder and gaining a momentum through the failure of the fourth estate, that's the media, to give proper analysis. And I think that's um, an outcome from Trump and I think it's been permeated throughout the world. So it's an um, international problem, that we, a malaise that we all need to um, understand. The, the power of media and moguls and what's being promoted is also through social media platforms is something that is also contributing. But yes, I do think that in recent times, um, uh, since the COVID challenge at Parliament, there has been a new right-wing emergence uh, to the detriment of what the Te Tiriti or Waitangi promises mm. are. And that emergence is based from the same ignorance that has called the racial divide during the 1960s and the kind of, um, you might remember, the fiscal envelope Mm. divide when they were saying that Māori privilege was being cemented by the fact of agreement to treaty settlement, not recognising that white privilege had been in place for 180 years and that the Māori privilege they were um, anchoring their hatred towards had only been in place maybe for an electoral term if we were lucky. So I think those forces have come together to create a different momentum. However, this is where I also see the beauty of decolonisation programmes. And we have a new generation of Māori leadership who are astute uh, te reo Māori and tikanga practitioners who are pretty rich, most of them middle class. You know, they're not of my time. And they have an independent view of the world, which is creating a pathway to something different than what the um, those protagonists of white hatred would like us to go, which, you know, they'd like us to go into a full-on confrontation, which we did, and which I will still do if I'm required to do during the um, 70s and the 80s. But times have changed. I think uh, I want to talk about the modern movements, the Panekaritanga and the Scotty and Stacey Morrison movements for the reclamation of our reo. They have given an aroha um, to, for our language to the general populace yeah. so that we have Asians for Tanoranga Tiratanga. We have people who are proudly spending their night classes learning and acquiring te reo. Mm. 
That's also had an opinion shift, I think. And certainly I'm noticing it in a number of contexts. Mainly when I'm watching my mokopuna play rugby, they all come over and before what used to be the Māori's on that side or the solo mother Māori's on that side and the Pākehā's on that side. Now we're all together and we're all having a lot more talk. Yeah. And they all say to me, oh, we're doing te reo Māori classes at uh, Manuko Institute or at uh, 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 Polytech and we're getting really, have you heard this waiata? And I'm going, oh, no, I haven't heard you. You're actually better at the waiata than me because Scotty's got you on the, the latest waiata numbers. But I do notice that shift. I notice it in the sporting heroes yeah. that we stand up now, you know, yeah. the Ruby Tuis of the world and the Stacey Walkers of yeah, the world. Yeah. I see that those are the role models of our children's time. They are all people of colour. They are all people of colour and they are making a difference in the impact and the mindsets, the cultural um, persuasion of those role models for our children. But the systemic exchange and the power structures remain. Yeah. And that's where co constitutional transformation is really required. And, and just before I get to the constitutional transformation bit, the other part that is aligned to this conversation is the deliberate targeting of female leaders and in particular Māori female leaders. Mm -hmm. You know, I talk about Nanaya, Kiri Allen, mm. Marama Davidson, even you. Mm. I mean, do you, do you get targeted? I get targeted all the time, but I, I'm, a, I'm a bit like Eva now. You know, I'm always going to be a rangatahi and I just kind of, uh, I've, I've learned strategies to cope with that. And mm -hmm. I was surrounded by women like Eva who taught me how to deal with, you know, physical attack because yeah. it's not just mental yeah. or um, abuse through the media. It's physical fisticuffs. I mean, I was followed around several times in Farmers and Rotorua by some old guy because he just didn't like what I was saying about the fiscal envelope in that period. I, I had people try and burn down Hongi's track, our, our tree, down in, in where I live. I've had my children accosted. So I've had the whole dilemma of... Um, of uh, interference with my uh, freedom of movement by people who don't agree with those things that I say. But I've managed to instill um, strategies for me to have confidence and, you know, never allow fear to paralyse or to intimidate. And I've tried to inst instill that understanding in our current leadership. What worries me, and I'll use the, the media again and um, the protagonists that want to take Māori out, is they use Māori women as easy targets, who are great Māori women. You know, Nanaya Mahuta will go down as one of the most important leaders of this last century. Just look at her political career mm. and look at, she's the first Minister of Foreign Affairs and Trade for Māori, but she's also maintained a leadership in cabinet that very few Māori women, other than Fitu Tirukatne Sullivan, have been able to sustain over 180 years since mm. that was first created. Um, Kiri Tapu Allen, you know, she used to work for me. I, she was a law clerk for me. She is um, a minister of justice before she's 40, and she will be remembered as going into cabinet to take up that role at a time when she was overcoming cancer, mm. when she had personal challenges within her own whanau that are enormous, that most of us could, and she was dealing with those challenges. And then she made a mistake and those mistakes, she fell on his sword, and I think she's yet to create another greatness. Um, but I saw the same hatred even against Georgina Tehehu mm. when she was a member of the National Party. 
They took away her ministerial portfolio or spokesperson role as the Minister of Māori Affairs. And she was the only Māori woman in that party at that time. She was the only Māori in that party at that time. Now, that kind of um, white privilege or the, 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 the racism of that um, I think is what I would like to challenge as both um, something that's behaviour that's unnecessary, it's misogynist, it's based, based on the misbelief that I can attack women because I'm stronger or I'm better than them, and I can do that mm. without um, fear or retribution. And that's what worries me. Um, I mean, I was at one stage threatened with sedition um, by then National Party Prime Minister Jim Bolger, but can I say when that happened, I was surrounded by great white men in the Pākehā law, um, uh, uh, people like Mike Bungay and Michael Quirk. Oh, yeah. I don't know if you know them, yeah. but they offered me an open checkbook and said, you just defend this, ain't it? <laughs> and um, that's only because you're beautiful, you're young, you're one of those Māori women with an apathy mouth and they don't they want to silence you because you got on the front page of the Chinese newspaper <laughs> um, warning people about foreign investment yeah. in our country. Yeah. But so, so for every bad experience I've had in my life, I've had, because of my father, I think, yeah. I've had good white men come to support me and support me in ways like not being in the front or taking the limelight, but, you know, a checkbook when you can, um, when you're facing the prospect of uh, being prosecuted is a real helpful um, show of support. I didn't need the checkbook in the end, but I needed this their, um, the power that they wielded within the law society to show that there was more to the story than just, what was just being Just to promoted. know you had the support. Yeah. Just to know you had the support. Yeah. So let's talk about the constitutional mm. uh, arrangements currently in the, in the country and those proposed by um, many, but in particular by a very good friend of yours mm. in Moana Jackson, that for want of a better way of putting it, that tricameral approach of having a, the rangatira tanga sphere the uh, the relational sphere, and then the kāwanatanga sphere. Um, it seems to me that that not only gives effect to all the constitutional documents, and I call them constitutional documents, um, but it also sets out what was actually envisioned through legislative requirements. I mean, if we go back to what... Um, Sergio Williams calls Cooper's Law, mm. all, all the way through. That, that gives effect to our legislative history right from uh, Cooper's Law to, to, to today. Is that enough of a change, do you think, to be able to deal with the separate issues that allows us to work in our way? You know, there's been that long, long going conversation about tikanga and the current law arrangements, and that that doesn't work and that should sit in just a different sphere. For you, does that tricameral approach, again, for want of a better way of putting it, the best way to be able to achieve those things that you have long fought for and advocated for? I think it's just step one in a trajectory of changes that right. need to happen. On a continuum. On a continuum. Um, one of the key things is you need to respect that Māori law is of equal value yep. to um, kawanatanga. And in Māori law, it's it's not something that's died. It's actually lived and it's very vibrant. You know, you've been on Tarawa when people have broken the kawa, you know, wanted to go and catch a plane and has said so in a fai corridor and then a pōkeka has been given to them. So Māori law is very much alive. 
Um, but it's just been invisible in its encounters with kāwanatanga law because kāwanatanga law have really been about suppressing a, a, us. So I think the first step is to recognise that you need a transfer of power to bring Māori law into a context where it can be used um, to enable engagement and resolution of disputes between ourselves as Māori. And I keep saying on the fisheries, why are we going to all of these cases in the High Court and the Court of Appeal where the lawyers like myself and the KCs are getting paid something between $500 to $1,000 an hour to work out who has the mana whenua? And then we see uh, a better way of focusing it was at Matatini mm. when we had Ngāti Whātua <laughs> full-on confrontation with Tainui. I'm not too sure who came out looking <laughs> best there. I think the, I have to say, Rewi Spragan's hangi came out best <laughs> on that day um, for the kai that everybody got after the drama. You know, that, that's Māori law that should have been used as a way to find solution as opposed to a process of going through the High Court, mm. Court of Appeal. So that needs to be built up. Then it's the engagement of um, notions of criminal law or private law like family law. And where's that place mm. in that relational sphere? And giving the space to Māori law to actually make decisions in that sphere Recognising there are challenges, like in my family, if we had gone to a dispute resolution, my, my dad's a Pākehā from Ireland, my mum's a Māori from Hinehopu, there would have been cultural differences. So how would that be dealt with? At the moment, there is no choice like that. Yeah. And that's where I think we need to create the choice. Well, that's exacerbated by, you take a, a, an issue currently at the forefront of many people's minds, uh, Wakatū. Yeah. And that Supreme Court decision in 2017, very clear. What does yeah. the Crown do? Doesn't well engages in a very minimal way yeah. what seems to be a very clear case to res, to try and resolve that issue, and what happens? We end up back in the high court again, and simply yeah. because the crown wouldn't act. Well, it's more, it's worse than that. They've created this political regime called the treaty settlement regime. Yeah. When there's a private law regime that's, that's available right. to all members of our community, yeah. that's still available to Waka too, but they don't. They're trying to intimidate right. us from using both avenues. Uh, um, uh, as a way of finding appropriate compensatory relief. The um, treaty settlement one is based on a premise that you only get 1% or 2% in restoration of rights. And this one is based on the belief that you have equal, uh, an equitable expectation of outcome. Yeah. And um, that's that's where the conflict of laws against comes forward. And then the notion of power, which goes all the way back to the papal bulls and the, the understandings of the earliest colonising um, antics, that they had the right to come here and put a flag on this land, even though most of us have been living here for two or 3,000 years before they arrived on um, their boats. You know, It goes back to that whole sense of superiority. So we've got to change that. So how do we change that discourse? I think we're starting in the right way. You know that little petition from those girls from um, yes. Matau or wherever they came from? Yes. Tainui? Yeah. Um, education. That's the first thing. And then we need to accompany that with uh, organisation. So um, um, education within the system. That petition from those young women 
um, in Tainui, took to Wellington. That has now changed um, the, our law. So the Education and Training Act has uh, Section 12 there that says give effect to Te Tiriti and its principles, and the curriculum must change to enable the history of local circumstance to be developed. And now we've got um, a relationship agreements being developed with Tainui and the Education Department, Tauro and the Education Department, to ensure the richness of our community's understanding is part of the education curriculum. But we also need to organise, you know. That's one of the things that I'm, um, that's the Sid Jackson teaching to me, is that if we want to affect change, then we need to organise communities to ensure that change. We can't just let Julian Wilcox and Scotty Morrison to do all the education through the media. We've got to organise our school teachers and those that are coming forward to actually desire to be school teachers. Mm. Everybody just wants to be a good-looking broadcaster like Julian or a good-looking rugby player like the Ayani brothers or look like Ruby Tui. That's not going to create the systemic change in outcome. We've got to create the barefoot school teachers that our grandparents were and encourage them to go and teach and teach in te reo and teach in a kind and loving way. So organising for that. I've done enough organising in the lawyers. We don't need any more lawyers, I can tell you. There's like <laughs> 500 lawyers a year coming out. We need to see more different kinds of skill base. You know? but, but how do we achieve that, given you know more than the most, the inequities that occur? We, you, you were mentioning off camera mm. what's happening with the nurses and and, and Māori PHOs and mm. the the inequity of funding yeah. uh, and wages and salary to those who are involved in that industry. So how how do we do that given that there are inequities not only in health but also in education? Well, then we need our own peoples to have our own think tanks. We need our own independent institutes of philosophy. That's why the initiatives at Farewananga Rokawa and Awanuiarangi, they're creating research units, yeah. you know, the only people research unit creates the data from which you can do the analysis and then you can seek equitable outcomes. So there's an intellectual force but also a people understanding of that because it's no use having all these academics walking around saying preaching this, that and the other thing without the actual people on the ground understanding why they're preaching that. Mm. So we need to organise for that change. And then how do we affect that change? Action. So we actually start saying to them, okay, in these schools, this is the curriculum and these kaumatua supported by these kaiafina are going to come in. I'm just using education. Yes. Yep. And that's what's happening, you know. So that's in that area. But at the same time, we also, you know, Generation Z aren't of the same generation as me. They are, are the creators, you know, the, the avatars of the, the planet who have actually aren't, aren't limited by what is and more motivated by what should be and they can see what should be because they have an imaginary or an imagination um, beyond that that I was ever permitted to have. Mm. So we've let them take the shackles of that imagination off. We've got to provide resources for that. Frankly, some of the men on these papa got to move over. I saw the changing of the guard at the coronation this week. No women were considered for that Tacoma. I was waiting for um, a couple to get up there, and they said, "Oh, Tara was still making its decision." I was wondering why it was because the competency of those Tarawa men aren't as good as some of the women that weren't present. You know, you got to ask these questions. And why should it just be men that are on these decision-making councils at that spiritual level? I say that with all the greatest respect to the kingitanga and my piki whānau, but times 
are changing and we need to permit change that recognises the, um, the complexity of the interface of skills that gender and uh, that brings to these kind of decision-making processes and the, the experiential understanding that will help in de- deciding those matters. Mm. So have a, have a shot in it at the kingitanga. We'll <laughs> see what happens. I better say a karakia after this, okay? And then, but, you know, in the modern context, um, how do we get that constitutional change? Well, we need Pākehā allies. We need, um, you know, an emerging group of young men and women who actually have a love for this nation like we do and actually can see that in the constitutional force of Te Tiriti and He Putunga, there is a blueprint of coexistence that no one else on the planet had designed but was designed for this place mm. and commit to that. So the organising must also include people that have lived with us, and that's, I think, the biggest change I've seen in 20 years. You are, are, you, are you confident that that constitutional change will occur in your lifetime? If it's not occurring in my lifetime, because I never know, activists never know when we're going to die, you know. Doug, Dan Mihaka died today, and I thought mm. he was going to live forever, mm. okay. So um, I, I think we've planted the seeds for the desire for that change, and we have the competencies. I do believe in X, Y, and Z. I've got two young men, who are my sons who I love, um, who I know will fight for that wherever they walk. Mm. I go to our marae, you know, not the flash ones, but the ones that are digging the holes at the back, that are doing the kai. They talk in about constitutional change and about power. Once you, that pemia, that filters right throughout all the corners of Te Māori, yeah. then the rest of the world has to be persuaded that there is um, a, a change coming soon. And that change should be like I say, organise for now. So there needs to be a transfer of power. We need to start saying things like, do we need a separate parliament for Māori? Do we need to have a separate governance structure? Do we need to have separate um, policy units? Is iwi leaders done their, their, done their time? Is, do we need to try and evolve to a different kind of decision-making framework at a constitutional level? The National Māori Congress was a bit before time. Is it time to revive that? We need to ask these big questions. We need constitutional conventions that permit us to imagine what that might look like. I think you're right. I think those conversations, I mean, you know, hey, it's a biased point of view because now we've been talking about constitutional change mm. on its mm. marae for years. Mm. Um, uh, you know, certainly uh, I think a standing agenda item on the uh, on the women's marae committee meeting mm. <laughs> <laughs> and will continue to be. Um, and by the way, that's not a settlement conversation either. No. That's just an ongoing yeah. flex and push about constitutional arrangements. Um, the part that that worries me um, is that you may have noticed there is a growing political force mm. uh, following on from Trump Trump and the others that seems to still be quite popular. Mm. Um, and I know as, as a former politician, and I know you, you, you dipped your toe into it and, and all that kind of thing. And one, because we actually got the Labour Party back in when the National Party and the Māori Party weren't doing good things for our people. So you needed to ask what the political strategy was at that time. I don't think it was to birth the mana movement, but it was to change the government, which we achieved. Do, do we... I mean, you, you will, we will only ever get constitutional change as long as we get the strong... Polit- people will, yes, but also the political representatives that can implement that change. Does that concern you at all, that that uh, might not yeah. happen? It, it does, but I, I, I think that the speaking voice for that has to be a generation that's younger than me. Yeah. I've, um, I think that we, we struggle with giving power over 
to those in our generation that are the best people for the job. You know, I'm, I'm constantly reminded, Hinamo was 16 when she swam to see to Tanaka, you know. Um, you know, let's be really, uh, really frank. Um, Eva Rickard was 72 when she made a, a thing for Raglan, but she was actually um, setting up a, um, a bullet, bullet factory when she was in her 30s and 40s because there were no men around during the Second World War. Wow. So she had organised the ammunitions um, uh, outcomes for that part of the world. She was Mrs New Zealand. She yeah, was crowned yeah, Mrs New Zealand. Yeah. I mean, you know, they forget that when we're in the prime of our life, that there were leadership roles that were assumed by those in their 30s and their 40s, actively encouraged to those roles. Yeah. She was by Tapuya. Yeah. And these are the things that I think my generation need to look at, especially when I looked yesterday that uh, Winston's held, Winston and Shane, you know, I'm no disrespect to them. I think they're great politicians, but, you know, where's your young blood? Where is the next generation that you're speaking uh, will take the reins yep. for change. Labour's suffering from the same thing. I think Māori Party may be getting onto it with young Hana. Yeah. But, you know, we just need to be aware that we are constrained by mimicking what they do instead of creating models of what we should be doing um, if we're really serious about the change. And the other thing that comes to my mind uh, as we rapidly conclude, but the other thing that comes to my mind is the, is the role that we have internationally as we're seen to be an indigenous leader in mm. Aotearoa, and whether that's true or not. Mm. But but there's also seems to me that that this is required because it's something else that other indigenous communities across the world can look to and say, well, this can be done. Now, in saying that, there are other indigenous arrangements that occur. You're probably aware of British Columbia and some mm. of the really so the Nishka people and and um, some of the work that many Jules and his tribe and bands have been working on for a long time now, which actually we should aspire to as well. But it seems to me that we still have an international role that – I don't know if, if we forget that sometimes, and I know you're very close to Indigenous networks. Are we still seen to be an Indigenous leader? And, well, certainly are. I mean, I visit Taiwan regularly. I'm right. going to Canada um, because we actually have um, tried models of change. A lot of people talk about what might be, but we've actually, um, you know, we set up the National Māori Congress. Yeah. Uh, uh, we're looking at a constitutional forum in Napuhi. That's for your rohe. I mean, that kind of regional challenge to power is being tried and tested here. And I think in a number of Indigenous communities, they follow those exam as examplars of change. Certainly, Kohanga Rio, mm. Kura Kaupapa have also been those exemplars. Uh, I know now that there's teaching of tikanga as a it's going to be a, a compulsory subject in the law schools and, you know, with Te Pare Wānanga or Awanui Arangi offering those things. Those are, they're, they're leaders in the world, both um, in the Indigenous world but in the in the world on the, the innovation of that. Um, but then, you know, your medium, we have to learn from that. Uh, otherwise, we're just going to be overtaken by artificial intelligence, uh -huh. to be really frank. Yeah. You know, the barriers to any development is that we fail to see the technological advancements that are actually themselves moving change in a world. You know, it's a bit like the wheel when it, that happened and the uh, use of uh, of water and then the use of electricity. I think we're in a moment in time for that. So we've got to be really careful mm -hmm. that we don't... Um, freeze ourselves in an institutional framework of yesterday when we should be actually dreaming about an institutional uh, opportunity that we can actually create and implement tomorrow. No way. Thank you. 
for this corridor. I was reminded the other day when I started in the media, we were still editing on reel to reel. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Which makes me feel real old. Um, but thank you. Every time I sit down and talk to you, I, A, I learn a lot. Uh, but B, I, I always get invigorated. I just I walk out of a room going, right, what am, what am I going to do for the rest of the day? What am I going to do tomorrow? And I just want to say, long may you continue to have that impact on people. Oh, I think it's um, something that I, I, I'm, I'm pleased to hear that I do that. Sometimes I make people cry, you know, about uh, what they should have done and could have done and didn't do. You know, like when you peel the layers of an onion back and you start crying and um, – I'm glad to hear that as critical as I am in peeling those layers back, that people are seeing the knuckle of what I'm doing is actually trying to get to the heart of a solution so that from tears of understanding, you can actually have heartfelt commitment to change. But, but your, your, your critique comes from a place of love, as you say, love mm. for our people. Yeah. So so I actually don't mind your your you'll call it criticisms. I think it's actually constructive because you're doing it from their place. You're doing it because we, you know we can do better. You know, I, I know you've critiqued me and others in the media, mostly directly, <laughs> which, which I appreciate. But when you appreciate where it comes from, why you're doing it, and actually what you think you can learn from that, that's, that's not something that should be ignored or, or, um, or, or you know, as negative. That's, that's just my view on it. Because no, only I, I people agree. like that, the vo it's the conscience of our, of our communities. Is yeah, I think I'm on a pipe, I'm in the middle. Okay, so <laughs> that's my role. Okay, I think on the beginning, I'm not, if we look at a tyre, yeah. I'm not the uh, all. I'm there, maybe sometimes a bit of a, but in the middle, making sure the katoa come, <laughs> come along. But if we, if you know, that's where I see my role. Uh -huh. And um, I think people need to understand that too, that those that are in the fronts, sometimes they are the ornate leadership that are encourages and, and states people. And it's your role is not less important than yeah. theirs. It's as important to feed that leadership. See, see, I don't actually agree with you on that point. Mm. I, I, I actually think um, you are at the front. Now, the, what, why do I say that? I'm going to have to justify that now, I know. But um, having seen what you've done and having seen the way in which you have served our people, and I hope you don't mind me using that, mm. but, uh, but it is servant leadership that, mm. that you do. See, see, I see that as being at the forefront. Mm. I see that as being the way in which your amata, elders, acted together, collaboratively with each other, but always in that kind of vein of servant leadership. And, I, you know, I think that's actually something really for all of us to aspire to is how I see yeah, it. Yeah, I'm glad to hear that. I try – that is one of my goals is to try and emulate that leadership. You know, um, my grandmother was a legend in our whānau for all of us and she created not just lawyers, she created teachers, she created people that were architects, um, but she created people that stayed at home. Mm. None of us left home. And that's what I think is the key to actually, if you believe this is your country, then you have to stay in this country and grow with it and um, all the aches and pains of that. And that's some of the problems of the modernisation of this new generation that I'm, I'm struggling with. Everyone wants to come into a marae committee through a Zoom and talk about uh, their land shares when I don't think they've come in 
wash the tea towel for a while or yeah. or even gone to the cemetery to see how full they are and we can't actually, we're worrying about the, uh, you know, the fact of overflow and we can't actually afford $5,000 plots for mm. the next whānau member to get buried. So, you know, there's, there's a lot in that leadership. Having said that, um, yeah, I think I, I come from a time where um, we were, we were moulded into assuming roles of leadership and I hope that I haven't, um, you know, let down people like Mirasazi and uh, Eva Ricard. Sean Elias is one of my Pākehā mentors, um, Jane Kelsey, that, you know, they were there mentoring me to maintain um, that fearlessness you talked about earlier. When I, It would have been really easy, really, really easy to just go and to get a big job and work um, as I was offered with the United Nations, but I decided against that and... I, I have no regrets about those, those decisions. Indeed. Thank you for joining us on Indigenous 100. Kia ora.